This escape pod is rated PG-13 for sexual description. Escape Pod 243 June 1st, 2010 Today's story, I'm Alive, I Love You, I'll See You in Reno, by Vera Captain. Hello, and welcome to Escape Pod. I'm your host and editor, Mer Lafferty. Today we're releasing a special story for a special reason. We're not quite at the very special episode of Blossom level, but we're close. Today marks the release of a new fiction magazine, Lightspeed. It's an e-zine that will be podcasting two stories per month, so there's more fiction for you to enjoy. Editor John Joseph Adams and I are running a cross-promotion, where Escape Pod is releasing the audio of one of their stories today. Viler Captain's I'm Alive, I Love You, I'll See You in Reno. Here's an intro from John Joseph Adams. Hi, this is John Joseph Adams. I'm the editor of Lightspeed, a new online science fiction magazine, which you can find at lightspeedmagazine.com. In Lightspeed, you can expect to see all types of science fiction, from near-future sociological soft SF to far-future star-spanning hard SF, and anything and everything in between. No subject will be considered off-limits, and we encourage our writers to take chances with their fiction and push the envelope. We will bring you a mix of originals and reprints, and we'll be featuring a variety of authors, from the bestsellers and award winners you already know, to the best new voices you haven't heard of yet. So when you read Lightspeed, my hope is that you'll see where science fiction comes from, where it is now, and where it's going. Our debut issue features four all-new, never-before-published stories. There's The Cassandra Project, from best-selling award-winning author Jack McDevitt, a tale about Earth's moon and the mysteries that it might still possess. From author David Barr Kirtley, we bring you Cats in Victory, which tells the story of a young cat man who must face the last of the dogmen and something else entirely unexpected. Then there's Amaryllis, from best-selling author Carrie Vaughn, a cautionary tale of the near future that shows some of the extremes we might be pushed to if we don't start implementing now the seeds for a sustainable future. And finally, the story we're launching with and this week's escape pod story is I'm Alive, I Love You, I'll See You in Reno, an interstellar love story dealing with the perils of communication and time dilation by Vilar Captain. All that's just in issue number one. In future issues, we'll be bringing you fiction from the likes of George R. R. Martin, Joe Haldeman, Ursula K. Le Guin, Carol M. Schwiller, and Catherine M. Valente, among others. Although Vilar's story is appearing here in Escape Pod, Lightspeed will also be producing some original audio content ourselves. In addition to publishing our stories online, we'll also be podcasting two stories a month. Producing them will be Grammy and Audio Award-winning narrator and producer Stefan Rudnicki, one of the best audiobook narrators in the business. Stefan narrates Jack McDevitt's The Cassandra Project, and his colleague Gabrielle DeCure reads Carrie Vaughn's Amaryllis. And to round things out, just so you can listen to every single story in issue number one, we got to find folks at Starship Sofa to adapt David Barkertley's Cat in Victory. And so to get back to the matter at hand, this week's story, which, as I mentioned, is I'm Alive, I Love You, I'll See You in Reno, by Vilar Captain. Vilar writes speculative fiction of all genres, including science fiction, fantasy, horror, and slipstream. She's published stories in magazines such as Clark's World, Realms of Fantasy, and Strange Horizons. She lives with her husband Shannon in Northern California and blogs at VilarCaptain.net. So, strap yourselves in and get ready to make the jump to light speed. It's story time. I'm Alive, I Love You, I'll See You in Reno by Vilar Kaftan. We have a history of misconnections, you and I. Years ago, 
When you called goodbye from the shuttle launch, my flight was landing in Zurich. I'd changed planes, been rerouted from Frankfurt. That's why you got my voicemail. I'd have answered it if I could, and would have wished you luck, even if you wanted a life without me. I never managed to see Europa, like you did. Just Europe, where I met my first husband. The one I wished was you. When I heard your message, I was glad you were happy. Yes, I've always wanted you happy, even during our divorce. I thought of you traveling to Alpha Centauri, time dilating between us like a portal. I envisioned it like a slow-motion movie. You'd be back in 40 years, I'd be 64, you'd only be half my age. I saved your message for weeks, until I accidentally deleted it. It felt symbolic. We'd be happier apart, I thought to myself. But apart was always the way we connected. The word defines us relative to each other. One cannot be apart without the other. Einstein spent ten years thinking about a mirror that troubled him. If he traveled at the speed of light and looked into a handheld mirror, would he see his reflection or not? Setting aside vampirism, or poorly made glass that cracks at high speed, the answer is that he must. Relativity means that you can't tell how fast you're going until you have a point of reference. We've been together for as long as I can remember. Just kids, running around the Sacramento suburbs. I liked you because you'd play with a girl. I ran faster, fought harder, and hit harder than any boy, and I knew it. Remember that time we played Capture the Flag and you couldn't find mine? I shoved it in a drain pipe. You could still see its corner. That counts. I was the girl next door. Safe, reliable, undesirable. When I was 13 and you were 16, I was crazy in love with you. But you were blind. Best friends forever, you told me. I thought that you'd never see me as a woman your own age. I had to hear about all those girls you dated. Remember that awful redhead who stole cigarettes from her grandmother? I bet she got lung cancer. Best friends, I told you too. We were together, yet completely apart. I used to wonder how to make you see me. Should I tell you what I felt? Stay silent and hope you'd see? But you made the choice for me. You left for the military. So I joined the Peace Corps, the polar opposite of what you did. This drew us together again like magnets. It's why we ended up living together in San Francisco, roommates and lovers. I didn't know this then, of course. All of this I figured out during the journey to Alpha Centauri. Two magnets apart continue to exert force on each other. Their power lies in the space between. Einstein says that nothing moves at the speed of light because the faster things get, the heavier they become. That's true as I accelerated, everything had more weight. Two decades of child-rearing, juggling flute practice with my photography career, balancing a marriage's weight against single independence. But weight is relative, and what's heavy on Earth is light on the moon and monstrous on Jupiter. Yet the mass remains the same. The more things change, the more they stay the same. When I think about the changes in my parents' lives and how much more I've already seen in fewer years, I think of Moore's Law. The world is doubling every year. Somewhere in old Italy, Galileo is searching the skies with his telescope, wondering why his life doesn't feel as full as it should. It's because I have it all. Four centuries later, his life and millions of others. The doubling sequence surprises people who've never thought about it, though. Reno, you told me once. Reno, Nevada. 
when we lived in San Francisco in that tiny apartment above a mission district taqueria. Do you remember that conversation? We were sitting on that awful brown love seat you'd rescued from a dumpster. You were heating dinner in the microwave, and the room smelled like curry. The fog rolled through the city, and we both wore old sweaters. I didn't yet know the relevance of Reno. If we're separated, you said. Why Reno? It's inland. When the big quake hits the bay, Reno's safe. Or if there's a missile strike or something, no one strikes Reno. You're paranoid, I said. You shrugged. I'm aware. We'd been living together for six months. We'd made good roommates, both of us loud and neither of us tidy. You took out the trash and I sorted the mail. We both did the dishes when needed, and not more often. I didn't mind your water skis propped against the fridge or your physics books scattered on the pizza-stained carpet. You didn't mind the way I always slammed doors and drawers, no matter how quiet I tried to be. It was a good arrangement, but not what I wanted. I knew you loved me, of course. It was written in your eyes when you looked at me, a physics problem with no clear answer. If an irresistible force meets an immovable object, what happens then? They meet. That's all we know. Relative to each other, they are in contact. From within the object or the force, there is no way to tell if you're in motion. For a while, I was Karen to your Pluto, keeping the same faces to each other as we circled around endlessly. And through all of this, you still thought of me as a moon and yourself as a planet. But it's not so easy as that. Our orbit is erratic, an ellipse among circles, an offbeat pattern in a regular solar system. Do you see the sun far in the distance? Even when our orbit sweeps close to the sun, it takes four hours for its light to reach us. It's a center point that keeps us captured. We circle it so we don't fly off into space. It's a point of reference, and it proves to us that we're always in motion. We keep moving, along with everything else, even if we can't see where or how. By the time we got together, it was more for convenience than anything else. It was what we did. Have sex, fight, break up, meet someone else. And when the new relationship burned out like a magnesium ribbon flared and gone, we'd find each other again. The best thing between us was the sex. We fought, oh yes, we fought, and then had makeup sex. Hard, hot, and heavy. You'd drive into me just before I was ready, making me ready and then finished just after me, both of us collapsed together, trapped in each other's gravity wells. When you slept, I'd stroke your rough, calloused fingers and the super-glued cuts on your feet from water skiing. I'd think about our next fight, and my body tingled with wanting you. I'll marry you, you said once, if you can't find anyone else. I laughed because I thought you were kidding. You couldn't even propose right. It was the last push on a decaying orbit. I was not your fallback option. From the time you said that, our path downwards was guaranteed, calculable. We fought about the phone bill, Chinese leftovers, a broken plate that didn't get swept up. When you told me about your new job repairing relativity shuttles, I was secretly glad. Your work would take you to Reno, out of my path. I was completely over you, over us, or at least I was then, when you left. I was on the rebound, ready for someone new. Gunther, the German engineer, was everything you weren't, so I married him. Once you knew his first few digits, they repeated in a predictable pattern. He was a wonderful father to our two sons. I thought of you sometimes as I raised my boys, perfect squares in their rational world. I never forgot you.
Thanks to genetics, we expected Gunther's heart problems before they happened. He lasted 25 years with me, then slipped away. My kids are on their own by then, and I had time and money. I was free to choose irrationally, and so I took up water skiing. When you came back, I was surprised you came to my door, and even more surprised that you wanted me. I didn't think you'd stay with me, a hot young thirty-something with this dried-out old lady. You kept saying you liked my maturity, you found me sexy. But it was different for me. I saw you like my kids, more like a son than a mate. If I can't find anyone else. That's a terrible proposal. It makes a woman feel like you're just putting up with her. I did find someone else. I had twenty-five happy years with him, while you were living through just a few months. I accumulated the weight of years, of a woman building decades with her partner, of a mother renewing herself by raising her children. All of this weight I gained, not to mention a newfound belly. But I married you anyway. You wanted to be with me, you said. All your recent thoughts told you so. My age didn't matter. You still wanted me, the woman you'd loved all this time, you said. As for me, now I had what I'd always wanted, but it wasn't what I thought it would be. One night, after we made love on the beach, I watched the stars. They shone with light from billions of years ago. The stars offered us time apart. That's why I sold everything I had, to see what you'd seen. The new relativity shuttles were even faster than yours had been, and now they were open to tourists. It had been forty years here, after all. I'm sorry I didn't leave a note. I figured it was all relative. Gunther was always patient with me. Slow. He'd wait for me to orgasm, like he was holding a car door open for me, and then he'd finish quickly and silently. Sometimes I pretended he was you, to make things more exciting. Once I pretended he was Albert Einstein. It was the accent, I swear. With you, the electromagnetic pull bonded us together. We could ionize briefly, visiting other molecules and forming weak bonds, but we always came back together, circling each other endlessly an electron and a proton, you and me. For a long time, I thought I was the electron, spinning wild patterns around you. Then I realized the electron was you, because I always knew either where you were or how fast you were going, but never both. So I left you and went to the stars like you'd done. Alpha Centauri! The brilliant star burned into my mind. It was a vacation for me, a short time away from Earth, for the first time, I saw the lights up close. The luxury ship went 99% the speed of light, much faster than you had gone, faster than before. I figured you'd be dead once I got back. It simplified things. Stopped the fighting. You'd be ashes, like you'd always wanted. I wouldn't even have to see your body. I thought about it as I looked through the viewport and realized that I was still thinking of you. That was when I understood that no matter how far I went or how fast, I still responded to you in every way. Every action produces an equal and opposite reaction. Our bond pulls me back, and I love you. Reasons why I have loved you. 1. Yes. 2. Yes, again. 3. Because you're you. None of these are love, perhaps, but they're forces of physics. And if love isn't subject to physics, then it has no grounding in our universe. I can't believe that's true. Just when I got back, you left again. Like one metal ball clacking another, the opposite side of our kinetic motion toy. 
you were off for the Andromeda Galaxy, moving at 99.38% the speed of light. Simpler indeed. I was 68. You were gone. It was time to move on. The world had changed since I left. The human lifespan was up to 150 years. I hadn't imagined this possibility. I had decades left for music, art, whatever I dreamed of. My health was good. They killed a malignant breast tumor and grew me a new liver, twice, but otherwise my body kept working for years. But my nervous system paralysis, that was incurable. I opted for cryogenesis, hoping they'd find a cure. If they did, years from now, they'd revive me and heal me. It was exciting. I wondered if it'd be hard to fall asleep, like Christmas Eve, not knowing what Christmas Day would bring. But of course, the freezing was instant. As I lay down in the cryo chamber, I thought to myself, Reno, that's where I should have gone when disaster struck. I was thinking of you. And then I was frozen, like Karen and Pluto. If I'm a train leaving Philadelphia at 3 o'clock, going 50 miles an hour, and you're a train on the same track leaving San Francisco at 4 o'clock, going 55 miles an hour, at what time will we collide and run each other off the tracks? More importantly, if we move at the speed of light and I shine a light in your direction, will you blink and tell me to stop blinding you, or will you not see me coming until it's too late? If Einstein is flying next to our train, looking into a mirror and wondering where his reflection has gone, Will you ask him whether anything stands still, or if everything is always in motion? Relative to everything else, of course. And ask about Reno. If our trains crash there, should we consider that they've stopped moving? Or are they still in motion on Earth, relative to everything else in the universe? Everyone's joined in the same future, except you. Time moves so quickly, accelerating to the point where we can hardly imagine what's next. I went to sleep expecting to be cured. Instead, the AI woke me and said I no longer needed my body. It downloaded my mind, and now I see. You and I are eccentric, but part of a solar system, and I know now where we belong. It's easy for me to travel along circuits, to expand my mind everywhere in the network, and then condense myself so small as to be negligible in the universe here in one corner of a virtual city. I see they've sent a ship after you, moving at 99.99% the speed of light. It'll reach you eventually. They'll download you and you'll fly back to me, here where we belong. I think I never left your orbit. I wrote you a long message to explain all this, but I think I'll erase it and just leave ten words. I'll tell you the rest when you arrive, when our perpetual motion comes to a relative stop. And that was our story. I've always looked at people who fight with each other as regular, even necessary part of their relationship with curiosity. I've never felt passion from arguing. I don't get a rush from the excitement. But I know people who do. What I love about this story is the constant deliberation on the effect we have on the people we love. There are people in your life who, if they went off to Saturn for decades, upon their return, you'd hug them and hear their stories and laugh at your old jokes and it will be as if nothing had changed. I can't blame our protagonist. Those are the people you want to keep in contact with in whatever form you can. So I'm really excited about the launch of Lightspeed. John Joseph Adams is an editor of renown already, having many awesome anthologies under his belt, and having been the assistant editor of the magazine of fantasy and science fiction for years. 
I know some people talk about the growing number of fiction podcasts as being, quote, competition to escape pod, but I don't see it that way at all. More podcasts equals more stories, which equals more entertainment, which equals awesome. Also, with someone the caliber of JJA in the mix, we're all going to have to work harder just to measure up. And let's get to feedback with our assistant regional manager, Bill Peters. Hey, this is Bill with the feedback for episode 240, The Last McDon or McDougal's, written by David D. Levine and read by Steve. This was also the last episode produced by Steve, which had Talia thinking of Fangburger. And I was going to say, well, that's very cyclical, isn't it? But Fangburger was actually episode two, not one. Netwit started off a thread of conversation by saying, I thought this was a dreadfully weak story. The characters were cliched, the story was cliched, and it was all set incomprehensibly in some future world. Why? What did it add? Old kit that I am, I find myself more and more skipping the stories that could have been set elsewhere. Dave Dottie replied, Setting in the future underscores that every generation feels this way about the one that came before. Set in today's world, it can be taken as a commentary on the internet generation. Set in the future, it's a commentary on the way all older generations feel and deal with their kids. Back on the main story, Julie said, I enjoyed this one, and a fine reading for Steve's last week as host. Interesting exploration of the generational conflicts in very plausible future U.S., I've often wondered how long traditional social structures will be able to withstand the ability to communicate in audio and video cheaply in real time with anyone, anywhere. I think the author takes the effect to an extreme, but I guess that's part of the job. And that's it for this week. Be sure to check out the Flash contest on our forums. And remember that the Escape Pod contest is now accepting sub-500 word entries at eaflash at gmail.com. Full details in the contest to forum on our forums, forum.escapeartists.net. Be sure to comment on this week's story, and I'll be back next week with feedback from 241, Thargus and Brian. Escape Pod is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. This story was published in conjunction with Lightspeed Magazine, found at www.lightspeedmagazine.com. All other rights are reserved by our authors. Blog about us, talk about us, tweet about us, or donate to us. We love all of these things. Our PayPal button is at escapepod.org. Be sure to check out our sister podcasts, Pseudopod for Horror and Podcastle for Fantasy, at their .org domains. Escape Pod is edited by Merle Lafferty, with Alistair Stewart as Reviews Editor and Bill Peters as the Assistant to the Regional Manager. Our music is by permission of Daikaiju. You can hear more from them at daikaiju.org. That was our show for this week. We close with a quote from, fittingly, Albert Einstein. How on earth are you ever going to explain in terms of chemistry and physics so important a biological phenomenon as first love? We'll see you next week with the beginning of our Hugo series. All short stories nominated for the Hugo will be podcast in the next five weeks. Be sure to check out Lightspeed Magazine. Subscribe to their podcast and be mighty.